Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the light of the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus left Genesaret and withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Then out came a Canaanite woman from that district and started shouting, Sir, son of David, take pity on me. My daughter is tormented by a devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples went and pleaded with him. Give her what she wants, they said, because she's shouting after us. He said in reply, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the woman had come up and was kneeling at his feet. Lord, she said, help me. He replied, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the house dogs. She retorted, Ah yes, sir, but even house dogs can eat the scraps that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, you have great faith. Let your wish be granted. And from that moment her daughter was well again. So here we have a mysterious passage again, quite mysterious passage from chapter 15 of, of the Gospel of St. Matthews. Um, this encounter of Jesus with the pagan woman, the Canaanite woman, she's from Tyre and Sidon, the region of Tyre and Sidon, and we'll, we'll find out a few things about that region. But this is a very mysterious encounter because it looks like Jesus is refusing to perform a miracle, which he could very easily do. So let's have a look at this gospel a bit closer. We're in Matthew 15, so we're really getting closer to Jesus finally setting out for Jerusalem, but he's not yet. In fact, he's going up north because he's in the region of Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus is still in Galilee. He's been in Galilee all this time. And he's moving around in Galilee all around. So we're in Phoenicia. So that woman, which Mark, not Luke, because this event is not recorded in Luke, it's only recorded in Mark and Matthew. Mark calls this woman a Syrophoenician, whereas Matthew calls her a Canaanite. In any case, that means she's not Jewish. She's not a daughter of Israel. She's a pagan. Mark qualifies it and says she's Greek. So she's pagan. Canaanite, why does Matthew call her Canaanites, well, the, the land of Canaan had disappeared a long time ago because that was at the time of Abraham, and then that was the promised land of Canaan. The, the, the Israelites came in with Moses. So that was 2,000, 1,500 years ago, the land of Canaan. So it was a long time ago, and there were few Canaanites left. Why does Matthew call her Canaanites? Because it, it, it means she's from the original stock of the land, if you want. 
but she's not an Israelite. She's not. She does not belong to Israel. She comes from this region, which is very interesting because in the middle between Sidon and Tyre, you have the town of Zarephath or Sarepta, which is this town where the prophet Elijah stopped when he was in exile, as it were, from, you know, there was a drought on the land. And that was, again, a long time ago, about 700 years before that, or 800 years before that. And King Heab was after him. And he took refuge in Sarata and found a widow there who welcomed him. And Jesus does mention that name. So that's this land north of Galilee. Jesus has been coming up from Galilee. He's going north. He's going further and further from Jerusalem, as it were, where he's finally going to go down to, 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 for, to meet his passion. But at the moment, he's still around there. And he's just come, as the scripture tells us, he, he left Gennesaret. So he left another region, which is not Jewish, the land of Gennesaret, which is about Garissa, Gadara. It's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. What is Jesus doing in a foreign land? That's the first question we could ask ourselves. Why is he going there? And part of the explanation, perhaps, I mean, is what happens before this passage is had yet another dispute with the Pharisees, another clash about rituals. And maybe he's trying to get a break. Maybe he's trying to go and find refuge somewhere else and just be unknown, have a break. Perhaps that's why he's there. That comes just before in, in chapter 15 about the traditions of the Pharisees, about the things that defile. Um, and so this big clash again with the Pharisees, all this pressure mounting up uh, between Jesus and the, and the Pharisees. So this is like a, an interlude episode in this whole tension, which eventually will lead him to his passion. And we have a dialogue and a miracle. And the dialogue takes most of the scripture here, because the, and the miracle is only at the last line, the last sentence of this passage. The rest of it is this constant dialogue, and in fact, seems to be a monologue. This doesn't seem to be much exchange. The only exchange between the woman and Jesus comes right at the end. But at the beginning, the woman starts talking, Sir, some of David, take pity on me. But he answered not a word. And so you have the intermediary of the disciples. So here you have Jesus, the woman, and the disciple. And it's like a three-way conversation. But it's only at the end that Jesus and the woman actually talk to each other. So this miracle is achieved through the persistent pleading of the woman. This woman is quite extraordinary. She will not give up. She will not take no for an answer. And Jesus will respond to that faith of that lady, even if she's pagan, even if she, he was not supposed to be there. But I mean, he wasn't supposed to be there in the first place. You know, when he says to her, I was only sent uh, well, he doesn't say it to her. He says it to his disciple. I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They could have said to him, well, what are you doing in Tyre and Sidon yet then? Again, this mystery of why is Jesus there in the first place, where it's not Galilee? Why is he in the foreign land? Perhaps this is a, a, the beginning 
of the expansion of the gospel outside of Israel. There's this this sort of pool for the for, for the good news for salvation to be available to all, not just to the Jews, even though Jesus says salvation comes from the Jews because he comes from the Jews. He is Jewish and, and for two thousand years the Lord God has prepared the people of Israel to receive his revelation, to receive his salvation. And finally the fullness of revelation and salvation comes in the person of Jesus. And and so it's a it's a very mysterious passage here, telling us both of the thrust towards outside of Israel and yet the reluctance, because he is therefore his own people first. And he says it himself. I have come, I was sent, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So what do we have? We have here a reluctant miracle. We have a, a miracle that Jesus performs, as it were, reluctantly. This is the, the little dog. Because it's quite shocking what he says and what he doesn't say. First of all, Jesus is not said to be entering a house, which is unlike the Gospel of St. Mark. He says, and he entered the house and will not have anyone know it because he's in pagan territory. So he doesn't, he wants to be incognito. Yet he could not be hid. There's so much he can do to hide himself. So immediately a woman comes to him. So that's Mark. But in Matthew, he does not enter the house. There's no mention of the house because a Jew is not supposed to enter a pagan house. A Jew is not supposed to enter a non-Jewish household. And so Matthew, who addresses himself primarily to the Jews to make clear that Jesus is fulfilling the law, is completely faithful to his people and to their tradition. So he does not enter the house. There's the, the first of reluctance as he even he stay in the region. Again, it's mysterious. Why is he here in the first place if he doesn't want to even enter a house? So there's, there's this paradox within the passage, within even in Jesus' own attitude of being there and yet not being there. We have Jesus who is silent, which is quite unusual. Uh, sometimes he's silent, but he does things. Sometimes his actions speak. But now he's neither doing nor speaking anything. And so the, the, the Canaanite woman starts shouting. So that must be quite a racket. Sir, some of the take pity on me, my daughter is tormented by them. But he answered her not a word, and he doesn't do anything. Sometimes somebody asks him something, and he, he simply does it without even... Or, or, for example, one of the main episodes when we have the silence of Jesus could be the woman caught in adultery. He doesn't say a thing, he writes on the floor. And then finally says, you know, let those who have no sin throw the first stone. And she must have made such a racket that his disciples pleaded with him, which is an echo of St. Luke. In St. Luke, we have the parable of the unjust judge and the widow, the judge who neither feared God nor, nor regarded man, and the, the widow who keep nagging him, the nagging widow. And that nagging widow eventually gets her due because the, the unrighteous judge is, where, is worn out. I will vindicate her or she will wear me out by her continual coming. She, she is just so annoying. We've got to deal with her and get rid of her. So that's the attitude of the disciples. They, they're not really concerned with the woman's plight. They're not concerned so much with, you know, doing something for her. They're concerned with their own peace of mind. 
They want her to stop shouting. They just want to, to stop the noise. And he doesn't even answer her. He only talks to the disciples. And then finally, when she, he does eventually talk to her, he calls her her dog. He uh, compares her to a dog, which is very rude and is very shocking and would be a lot less rude and a lot less shocking at the time because that's how the people of Israel considered anyone who was not from Israel. So the non-Jewish would be considered to be dogs, if you want. But still, it's it's rude, even though even though the term used could be like it's puppy. It's it's not so much at least it's not wild dog. It's it's a bit more um, gentle than that. But still, it's not very nice. It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. So that's the only thing he says to her in reply. Finally, after after all this shouting and all this pleading, and she comes back at him. She does not give up. And, and finally, she gets her wish. It really is this victory of faith and persistence. Because the, the disciples just want to get rid of her. And Jesus has spoken twice to say no. Jesus has said no twice. First, to the disciple, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then to her, it is not fair to take the children. So Jesus says no to that pleading for a miracle. And it's the only time, really, that, that I can, can think of where Jesus says no. And, and to something which is good, to something which is right. See, she's not asking anything for herself. She's asking for her daughter. And she's asking for her daughter to be delivered from a devil, which is precisely why Jesus came. He's the savior, the one who saves us from evil and death, the one who who is manifest the goodness of God, and he says no. So it's a very, very strange episode. Very strange episode. And finally he says yes. But that woman is absolutely admirable in every respect. She's not put off. She just carries on shouting until she gets what she wants. She will not take no for an answer. Even when no is spoken twice to her by Jesus himself, she will not take no for an answer, even from Jesus. Let alone from the disciples who can't get rid of her. She is incredible. But this passage echoes different things to us, different echoes. We find this scripture. So we have the same one in Mark. So obviously Mark and Matthew thought it was a very important passage to put in and significance, even though it is so mysterious, and even though Jesus is really not presented in a very good light. If Matthew and Mark's intention is to convert as many as possible to Christianity, it's not really a passage you would want to promote too much, because it's so mysterious, and Jesus doesn't look really good in that passage at all. Particularly in, in Matthew, whereas Mark only has one refusal of Jesus, and Mark doesn't have the silence of Jesus, Matthew just emphasizes so much that Jesus first doesn't say anything, then he says no twice, and then finally she gets it. So, very mysterious. Then, the other passage which it echoes very much is the healing of the servant of the centurion, which is in Matthew, and is also in John, and I think he's in Luke as well. And this healing of the servant of the centurion is similar. Why? Because the centurion is also a pagan. Jesus normally should have the same attitude towards the centurion as he has towards the Canaanite woman who's a pagan, who's a Greek. 
and yet he's much more lenient, much more welcoming, much more kind to the centurion than he is to the woman. The first thing Jesus says to the centurion is, I will come and heal him. So Jesus is ready to go into the centurion's house, the pagan household, and defile himself to save his servant. And it's the centurion who says, no, I'm not worthy. Jesus never offered any such thing to the woman. So I'm not worthy. But only say the word. And of course, Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion as he marvels about the faith of the woman. Those two people who are not from Israel have not profited from the, from the fullness of revelation that Israel has over 2,000 years, have not received all the, the loving kindness, all the, the word of God kept in the heart of Israel. These two people show more faith than the people of Israel. Truly I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And yet the centurion didn't have to put up with Jesus' refusal. But similar to the healing of the Canaanite woman's daughter, it's a miracle that Jesus performs by distance. He's not going to the servant, he's not going to the daughter, he just says the word, and the, the servant, Jesus said, go, it be done as you have believed, and the servant was healed at that very moment. And here with the, with the woman, we have Jesus answered to her, woman, you have great faith, let your wish be granted, and from that moment, her daughter was well again. So it's distance miracle. Miracles performed without the object, without the healing happening in front of Jesus. And both centurion and woman believe in the words of Jesus. They go home, they don't question him, they don't want any proof, even though they can't see it yet. So that really shows their incredible faith. Whereas, for example, Jairus, the daughter of Jairus, Jairus wants to take Jesus to the house. So that's a very similar passage, but a completely different attitude of Jesus towards the pagan person. Completely different towards the centurion than towards the, the, the woman. This paradox, because in Luke, Jesus tells us about the widow of Zarephtha, the, 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 the one precisely who comes from the region of Tyre and Sidon, in the land of Sidon, the prophet Elijah. And he tells about this widow in the context of the discourse, the first discourse he, he pronounces in the, in the synagogue in Nazareth, where the people reject him. The prophet is not welcomed in his own country. The faith of the people of Nazareth was too weak to be able to welcome him. And so he compares the widows of Israel to the widow of Zarephtha. It is to that widow that Elijah was sent, just like Naaman the Syrian. So God's, God's gifts, God's blessing, God's healing, God's life is offered to those outside of Israel. And Jesus here seems to be saying, it's a good thing. This is how it should be. This is because of their faith, and actually that puts everyone off him in, in the synagogue. They all want to kill him at the end because they were angry that, that he would compare them to those Israelites who were unable to have as, as much faith as Naaman and that widow of Zarephtha. And, and, but, but when he faces the woman of Zarephtha, as it were, of Tyre and Sidon, he's not, he's not anything like the prophet Elijah was to the widow. Very strange. So this, this great paradox again. And he talks about Tyre and Sidon again in Matthew 11, and we've had it a few weeks ago, 
If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it shall be more tolerable on the day of judgment of Tyre and Sidon than for you. And yet, he's in Tyre and Sidon. Here's a woman with faith, and he will not do, he will not listen to her. He will not, he does not want to perform that miracle. So, how do we understand this mysterious passage? And this is something we can ask ourselves more deeply even about God himself. Jesus, first of all, says no twice. And then finally, he says yes. What is the purpose of this passage? Why did Matthew and Mark insist on putting it in their gospel, even though it doesn't seem to be such an advert for Jesus? Why is it there? And it is about faith, and it is about God's providence. Woman, you have great faith. That woman who will not give up is an image for us, is a model for us of our faith, of, of something about faith that goes even deeper than those miracles which are instantaneously answered by Jesus. Those miracles when even, for example, with the leper, he gets angry. Of course I want to heal you. And here he says no. So this mystery of God's providence, that yes, sometimes God does seem to say no to us. And so what should we do when God seems to say no? But first of all, we can ask ourselves something about God. Because here Jesus seems to change his mind. At the beginning he says no, and then finally he says yes. And so we can ask ourselves, does God change his mind? Does God change his plans? Is our prayer something that will affect God to the point that he will decide something contrary to what he's already decided? That's a very good question. First of all, it really calls us to think more deeply about prayer, about our faith, but also about who God is. Now, God is not in time. Of course, God does not change his mind. Because, first of all, God is not in time. So he has, he, he, it's not like there's no change in God. God's mind, as it were, is set. And in, in fact, his mind, his self-knowledge, his truth, his word is, is his son, is Jesus. And Jesus is the yes of God. And there, there is no point at which God ever changes his mind about anything. God is not in time, and God is goodness and truth itself. It doesn't change. So, how can we understand this passage? Well, we can understand it in the light of God's providence. God's providence is at work, and God's providence is such that it will use other things to provide for other things. So God's providence is the first cause, that, that, that's how St. Thomas put it. God is the first cause of everything that is and everything that is being done and everything that will ever be done. God is the first primary cause. The greatness of God is such that not only does he causes things directly, but he causes things through other causes through other things. For example, when anyone has a child, 
God is the first cause of the child, but the parents are the second cause, the secondary causes. So without God, there is no child. Without the parents, there is no child, but they don't work at the same level. Because God also causes the parents who cause the child. And they're in their own right are total full causes. Because if they don't act as causes, nothing will be done. But yet all of this is within God's providence. In the same way, prayer is a secondary cause. Prayer is so efficacious that it is part of God's providence, if you want. It, it fits within it. So just as my actions cause other things to be, my prayer causes other things to be within the providence of God, who is first cause. And that is the perfect example of that is that woman, that Canaanite woman. She prays and she perseveres in prayer. She prays and she prays. Her prayer takes the form of shouting. So intense is it. It's not just a wishful sort of whimsical, it would be nice if she just goes for it and she will not give up until she gets the answer that she wants. Now, of course, if the Canaanite woman had wanted a million pounds or whatever the equivalent would be in the money at the time in Tyre and Sidon, probably she wouldn't have get, gotten it, no matter how, how loud and how much she would have shouted. Why? Because, again, within God's providence, what will be given through prayer is what is good for us, because God only gives us what is good for us. And the good is our good and the good of everyone. So what is good? So it's not just what we fancy, what would be nice, what would be comfortable, but what is truly good. We can think about St. Paul's plea of, Lord, take this thorn in my flesh away from me three times I have asked for it. And God answers him, my grace is sufficient for you. So in, in other words, this is an example where Paul prays and God says no to Paul. Why? Because it is better for Paul to live with that thorn than for him to live without in God's providence plan, provident plan, knowing that God knows everything and Paul doesn't know everything. And what is really, truly good is for us to be conformed to God. And that will require some humility. And sometimes humility is only acquired at the price of suffering. It will require some charity. And charity will be acquired at the price of sacrifice. It will require patience. It will require all these virtues that are truly good because they conform us to God who is good. They conform us to love. And so, yes, the, the point of prayer is not to take away everything that's uh, unpleasant or hard or the difficulties, although these can be taken away. The point of prayer is to become good as God is good, to, to, to become loving as he is loving, to become truthful as he is truthful, and for everyone to, to come to, to that communion with God. Salvation is the point of prayer. And so God will grant us, through our prayers, everything that is good for our salvation and the salvation of those around us. But our prayer, when it is conform to the designs of God. And here, the, 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 the free freedom of that daughter, of that little girl, or however old she was, 
from the devil was certainly according to the plan of God. God does not want anyone to be tormented by a devil. And so the woman was right to pray for that. It was good. It was according to salvation. It was fitting with the plan, God's plan of love and salvation. And so pleading again and again and again and again until she gets a yes, until she gets an answer, that's a sign of incredible faith. And her prayer, it really is truly the secondary cause, the, the, the cause of her daughter's uh, healing, just as much as Jesus is the cause of the, of the daughter's healing. Both. And you can see in that passage how our prayer cooperates is an instrument of God in his providential plan of salvation for all. And so it tells us a great deal about ourselves as well, about faith. First of all, because faith is all the stronger, not necessarily because things happen immediately to us when we have great faith. But certainly in that, in that passage where Jesus praises the woman for her faith, faith is all the stronger when he perseveres in spite of every, everything, in spite of evidence, as it were. Faith that is sustained through and through, even though the expectation of faith never seems to be coming, that's incredible. And so we shouldn't judge faith on results only. Of course, you know, uh, we, we need to pray with faith. We need to pray that God will grant us what we truly desire if it is according to, to, to the good of our salvation and the salvation of others. But when we don't get what we want, what we ask for, we shouldn't give up. Giving up is a sign of a weak faith. And that woman will not give up. And this is where Jesus really praises her. She shows, as it were, more faith uh, in 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 the long, in the perseverance, in the effort, in the in the suffering, in the having to put up with refusal, than those people who ask for miracle and immediately it's done. Comparable a little bit would be the faith of Martha with Lazarus. You know, I know you are the resurrection. I know we will rise a bit, but. Even Martha and Mary don't seem to believe that Jesus would be able to raise him from the dead here and now. Martha professes faith in the resurrection of the dead. Mary weeps. But no one, I mean, this, this raising of Lazarus seems to be taking everybody by surprise. But that woman, she will not take no for an answer. Uh, here we have as well the dignity of being a second cause. That woman is truly the cause of the healing of her daughter. Have, the daughter would not have been healed. If she'd taken just the first refusal and gone home, you know, uh, Jesus answered, no, not a word. And if she had heard, well, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and she thought, well, okay, then, never mind, let's go home. It wouldn't have happened. She kept going, she persevered. She knelt at his feet. Another thing I forgot to, to mention as well, she knows, she seems to know him already. Of course, his reputation would have traveled. At some point in Matthew, he describes the crowd coming around Jesus, and he says some people from Tyre and Sidon would come to listen to him. So Jesus' reputation is so great that people would travel even from outside of Galilee to listen to him. So she may have heard 
about him. She she definitely has heard about him. That's why she comes. But she calls him son of David, and that's very interesting because that's really a Jewish sort of emphasis. Why would a, a Greek woman care whether he's the son of David or not? What does it mean to her if she's not Jewish? Well, here is a, a reference which I, I found in one king. Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his, his father, for Hiram always loved David. Or Hiram. Now, Hiram or Hiram is a great king of Tyre who had provided all the material, had sold to David all the material that David needed to build the temple. And that's the region where that woman comes from. And so you have already within that region of Tyre a tradition of love for David. David is a name that means something to those people. They have provided the, the wood and the, the, the gold for the, for the temple. And so when she says son of David, perhaps she talks as one woman of her people recognizing that you know that love that her king of old had for David, she now has for Jesus. Take pity on me. But it's more than a recognition of his kingship. It's also a recognition of his divinity. She came up. She was kneeling at his feet, Lord. So she really recognizes. She has great faith in him. She recognizes him for who he is, and then she she's very witty. Even the house dogs can eat the scraps that fall from their master's table. Now, of course, the children's food, what does that refer to? The children's food, we just had the multiplication of the bread on the mountain, and we will have another one in chapter 15, just after that episode, practically. So Jesus feeds his people. Jesus feeds his people. And of course, he feeds his people with himself, with the Eucharist eventually. But she wants to share in that feast. She wants to share in that communion. So there is all this in the background as well. The children's food. Jesus himself. And this is extended. That communion is then extended through that woman who's a figure of all the outsiders uh, to everyone. So the dignity of being a second cause through our prayer. So the power of the prayer of intercession, and that's something we need to remember very much. Sometimes we can think, well, you know, what are you doing for the world? What are you doing to relieve the suffering of others? What are, you know, I'm, I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing, I'm, I'm doing so little. Well, I can only pray. And we think, well, that's really name prayer. What prayer is good for? Well, prayer is, is a second cause in the same if not in a more elevated way than me working at it. When I, when I efficiently do something for someone, I act as a second cause again. Out of charity, I, I enter into the movement of God's providence and I play my bit as I am given that dignity by God, that responsibility that I can do something for, for my neighbor, I can do something for my own salvation, and I will do my bit. However, how amazing it is that we can also ask him directly to do something, and he will listen to us. 
And in some way, we would be wrong to think that prayer is less efficient than actively doing something. I'm not saying we should not actively doing something. We must actively do all we can uh, in in charity for, for, for others, for the salvation of others, for our own. But prayer is absolutely essential. Because in praying, we put ourselves really in the movement of providence in that we recognize him to be the first cause. Without him, we can do nothing. And when we pray, we have the dignity to have an influence on things. Our prayer is so important that some of the things we don't pray for will not happen because we have not prayed for them. That's exactly what that passage is telling us. That prayer is effective as a second cause, but it is, it is, it is effective. And so the drama of omission, what we don't pray for, is just as bad as what we don't do. That's a drama of omission we all have to live with. And it's actually, you know, when we say the confiture, uh, I have, uh, you know, sins in, in thought, in word, in deed, in omission. Omission is actually the biggest category. <laughs> it really is the most scary. What I haven't done. And sometimes it can be summed up in what I haven't prayed for. Have I prayed? Um, and it's something we can all do. There's not much we can do, but at least we can all pray. So the prayer of intercession is absolutely essential in our life as Christians. And St. Thomas says it's the highest form of prayer. Because really, there we have the dignity of second cause. There we, we can um, efficiently um, make things happen, not as first causes, but as second causes. In the same, that, that really is the message of that gospel of Sunday. And this is the image of the church. The church is there to pray, the prayer of the church. The prayer of the church is primarily the Mass, and the Mass is the offering of Jesus to the Father in which we participate. It is our prayer as well. It's a prayer of thanksgiving, it's a prayer of praise, it's a prayer of sacrifice. It's, it's something we have to participate in for the salvation of the world. Jesus joins us to himself in that offering, and we have this dignity to, to be able to do something, to be able to you know, offer ourselves with him, uh, insignificant as we may be. The prayer of the church is also the office, the, the divine office that every priest and religious prays, but also is open to every layperson to pray. It's the constant prayer of praise, praise to God and intercession for the world. And the constant prayer of the church, which is embodied, as it were, in, for example, the, the, the contemplative life, the cloistered life, people who dedicate themselves to pray for the world. Now, their effect, we will only know, you know, in the light of heaven, in the light of, of glory. But without their prayer, their constant prayer, we'd probably be falling apart a long time ago. We, we always underestimate the power of prayer. So that's really what I think is the essential message of, of that gospel uh, tonight. The, the efficacy of prayer, that woman, is really 
a, a figure of the church. And of course, the church is made up primarily of, of the Greek, the pagans, the ones to whom the gospel has been proclaimed um, to the whole world, if you want. All of us who are not of Israel's heritage, we are like that Canaanite woman. We recognize Jesus as Lord and we plead we plead to him for the salvation of the world, for the evil one to be eradicated, for the evil to stop its influence, so that everyone will be saved and come into communion with God. 